Good morning to everyone, and again, welcome to the assembly. It is certainly good to be here, and it's good to see everybody. There's an issue that has taken place over the last few years that probably has shocked many of us, a debate that a few years ago most of us would never have even thought would be a debate, even in our country, as immoral as it often is, and that is the movement of transgender individuals. That topic of transgenderism has created a great deal of debate, and it hasn't only created a great deal of debate, but that lifestyle has gained a great deal of prominence in our society. It's not only accepted and tolerated, but it's even celebrated and promoted and taught in various ways. And again, just a handful of years ago, we would have been uh, shocked and amazed to think of where our country has come and where the world has come around this issue. Most of us had probably never even thought about other than maybe hearing a strange case here or there about uh, transgenderism. But one of the things that's interesting is that's not the only type of uh, trans situation that there is out there. That's the one that finds its way into the media the most, and it's the most popular. But I did a little bit of research just out of curiosity and found that there are also people that are considered to be transracial. That is, they believe or they identify as a different race than what they were born as. There are people that consider themselves as trans species. That is, they consider themselves or identify as as a species other than a human being. Some of these people think or desire to be animals. Some of these people desire to be alien. They don't even think that they are truly human. Now again, those are fringe elements and things that aren't in the media as much. But this trans issue is an issue about identity. In fact, the definition of transgender is someone whose sense of personal identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex. Now, one of the big debates in the world today is whether gender and biological sex are the same or if they can be different, but that very definition shows that in some way there is a contradiction and that the point is a person's personal identity, how they identify themselves as. An identity has become a very big topic in our culture. What do you identify as? How do you identify. Now, I introduce our sermon with that subject, but our sermon this morning is not about transgenderism or transracialism or transspeciesism. Our sermon this morning is really more about identity. And while I think those are things that probably all of us here would agree are wrong, that you can't just say what your identity is and that be the reality, I actually want to turn that discussion back around for us. Because while conservatives and Christian people often debate, and rightfully so, the problems of transgender or other trans issues, are we sometimes guilty of the same thing in a spiritual sense? And kind of a blunt question, I'll ask, could it, is it possible that we are what you might call a trans-Christian? And what I mean by that is do we identify as a Christian? Do we believe we are a Christian? Is our personal identity in Christianity, but the reality is we're not. You see, just because we identify as something does not make that reality. And while we see that so very clearly in other issues, sometimes we may not see that as clearly in spiritual matters. 
But when it comes to individuals that are transracial or trans species, or whatever it may be, that identity affects some certain things. It has to do with their desires. It affects things that they think and things that they believe. And it even add, uh, impacts to some degree how they behave. And that is also true spiritually speaking. And so there's four points that I want to make this morning about this. And the first of that is just because you want to be something does not mean that you are. For example, to use the situation of a transracial person or a trans species or any type of trans case, just because an individual wants to be something other than they are, for example, a man wants to be a woman or a woman wants to be a man, does not mean that they are. We understand, and even our society, aside from gender issues, understands that desire does not equal reality. Now, there are times that desire can motivate us so that we can act and work so that our desire becomes a reality. But other times, we may desire something that is simply impossible. In the former case, I can desire to be thinner. I can desire to be in better shape. Now, I may want that very badly. But that doesn't mean that that desire trumps my desire of chocolate chip cookies. And I can assure you it doesn't. It doesn't mean that I'm going to magically become thinner and lighter and in better shape just because I want it really badly. Now, on the other hand, if I will use that desire to prompt change and to eat better and to exercise more and to take better care of myself, then that desire can ultimately turn into a reality. But there are desires that cannot become reality. The example I'll use, because it's recent in my mind, is just a few weeks ago, Quintus or Quaid one told me that they wished they could be a bird so they could fly. And I remember thinking similar things as a child. I thought that'd be so fun to be a bird and get to fly in the sky and above the clouds. And that's a neat thing to think about. But it doesn't matter how badly he wants that or I want that or you want that. It is simply impossible for us as human beings to be a bird. I can desire to be eight feet tall. I can be desire to be able to breathe underwater. I can desire to take a stroll on the surface of the sun. It doesn't matter how badly I want these things. They cannot happen. And we need to realize that when it comes to Christianity, desire does not equal reality. We may want to be a Christian, but that does not mean we are. We may desire eternal life. I'm sure that all of us do. But that doesn't alone, that alone doesn't mean that we will inherit eternal life. I may desire to be a better husband, a better friend, more prayerful read my Bible more, to be more obedient to God. But you know, I can desire and wish that I were a better husband while not acting like the husband I ought to be. I may wish that I didn't give in to temptation. I may wish that I didn't sin as often as I do and yet still choose to sin. I may wish I was more faithful to the church. I may wish that I put church above secular activities. I may know these things are right, and I may even want to do them. But until I make the choice to do them, my desire is only that, a wish and a desire and not the truth. Simply put, it is not enough to want to be a Christian. We must act like a Christian. In Romans, Paul addresses that difficulty of the tension between desire and reality. Speaking of man's condition in Romans 7 verse 19, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Now that's just one verse in a lengthy passage where Paul is discussing this idea. I don't have time to talk about all of Romans 7 and 8. I encourage you to go home and read that and meditate and study that further. Uh, but one thing that's important, and this is a very important point about those chapters that people often miss, is Paul is not excusing sin. Paul is not saying it is okay to continue in sin because after all, you're just a human being and that's all you're ever going to do. And that's okay as long as you wish you didn't. As long as you want to be good and as long as you want to follow God, then that's okay. That is not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is simply pointing out that without Christ, sin controls us. And there is nothing we can do to overcome sin. Without the Word of God, there is no way that we can be freed from sin. And just a few verses later, in Romans 8, verses 4 through 8, Paul says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice what Paul says. Paul does not continue and say, as long as you wish you were doing right, then that's okay. You're never going to be able to do right. He says that if you set your mind on the Spirit, then you should live according to the Spirit. If that's your greatest desire, then you should live according to that desire. And how do you do that? He answers that at the end, by submitting to God. How do you know if you have a mind that is set on the spirit or a mind that is set on the flesh? Do you submit to God's law? Have you obeyed the gospel that God calls you to obey to have your sins washed away? If not, you may desire to be right in God's sight, but you have not yet submitted to God's law. Do you remain faithful to God? Do you attend the worship of the church that God calls you to attend? Do you grow in your knowledge of His Word? Do you seek to put away from your life the sins that God's Word identifies? And do you seek to do the good that God calls you to do? Now we may not be perfect in these things, but we at least must be growing in them and growing stronger and stronger in them. And if we are not willing to submit to God's law in these things, then the truth is our mind is set on the flesh. We may wish that it was set on the Spirit, but as of now it is not. Because we are not submitting to the law of God. If we want to do what is right, then we must follow God. We must hear and read His Spirit-given Word, and we must obey it. And when we do what the Bible tells us to do, then we will be doing God's will. And that's the good news about this thing. Is when it comes to the desire to be a Christian, that is not the type of or the class of desire that is impossible that is the class of desire that can be a motivator. But we must let it be a motivator. We cannot excuse sinful, mediocre, or lazy Christian living because in our mind we wish we were better. We must act upon that desire and follow Christ. But secondly, just because you think you are something does not mean that you are. Now, 
I believe and I am convinced that in many cases of transgender individuals, especially with where our society is now, many of those choices are nothing more than immoral choices. It's another form of immorality akin to adultery or fornication, just maybe more shocking to us. But there are also people, I truly believe, who it may not be a simple choice, but they truly have something very wrong. There are men who truly think that they should be a woman, and vice versa. In fact, because of this, not long ago, transgenderism, before it was politically incorrect to view it this way, was considered by almost every medical association as a mental illness, as a medical condition. Because thinking that you are something that you are not is not healthy. It is a problem. But there are people that really think that. There are people that really think they are not humans. I've read of some where people have two uh, healthy functioning arms. But they think, they are convinced that one of their arms is not their own. That they should only have one arm. That's not healthy. That's not good. And also, just because they think that doesn't make it a reality. And when you think you are something that you are not, that can be dangerous. And again, spiritually, that is very true. Just because you go beyond desire and because you think that you are a Christian or I think that I am a Christian does not mean that I am actually a Christian. And this can be very dangerous because if I think that I am following Christ, when in fact I am not following Christ, then that is obviously a very spiritually devastating situation. It is possible to believe the wrong things. It is possible to think something earnestly and yet be deluded. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, Paul is not doing what many people today commonly do and saying, you can't judge me. I have a relationship with the Lord and the Lord is my judge. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul has been falsely accused by some of the slanderous people that were there at Corinth. And he is pointing out that he's not too worried about their false slander and their false accusations. Now, before that sounds too arrogant, Paul makes the point that he's not only concerned, not concerned about their judgment, but he recognizes even his judgment is the final judgment. Now Paul says, as far as I'm aware, and Paul's being honest, he says, I know of nothing against myself. But he says, but that doesn't equip me. Our trial before the seat of Christ is not going to go, us stand before Jesus, and him say, do you think you obeyed me? And we say, well, yeah, I think I did. And he say, okay. Well, that passes. That's not the way it works before a judge. Many people believe that they don't deserve the sentences that they get in the courtroom. But that's not their decision based on what they think. It's the judges. And the same will be true for our eternal judgment. It will not be what we think and what we believe. It will be whether or not we have truly trusted in and obeyed Jesus. We are not acquitted by our thoughts. It is the Lord who judges. And as we think about that, we should take into account Paul's warning that there are people who have been and will be deluded. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 through 12, he says, The coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan 
with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now I don't know about you, but to me that has always been a difficult passage. Because it seems very strange that God, who is a God of righteousness and a God of love, is also said to be a God that would send in people a strong delusion. Why would God do that? Why would God send a delusion to people? Well, it's answered in the passage. And the answer is not that God has arbitrarily picked out individuals and decided that they will be deluded. He has not picked me and said, well, I'm going to let Nate know the truth, but James, I'm going to send a strong delusion. I just don't like Terry that much, so I'm going to send Terry a strong delusion. That's not how God has done this. God, it is qualified who it is that God will send a delusion to or who it is that God will allow to be deluded and believe a lie. And it's those who do not love the truth. It's those who instead of abiding by truth, take greater pleasure, pleasure in unrighteousness. This is a very frightening passage. But we don't have to be deluded. We just have to be incredibly straightforward and honest with ourselves. Do we love the truth? Or do we love our ideas? Do we love our lifestyle? Do we love our comforts? Do we love our unrighteousness more? You see, most people, while there are some people that just decide to cast God off entirely and not believe in Him or despise the idea of God, most people believe in God and want to be pleasing to God. But they also don't want to give up their lifestyles and their beliefs and their philosophies and their traditions. And so they find ways to justify those things. There are people that live in open immorality, that live in adultery, and have justified that, even tried to do so by Scripture. In fact, when I was coming up with this lesson, and I thought of that title of trans-Christian, I'm in it in the form of someone who identifies as a Christian, but they aren't. But I found out through a quick web search that there are people that are trans-Christian. And what they mean by that is they are openly living a transgender lifestyle, but they call themselves Christian. And they believe that that's okay. I'm not mocking those people. I'm not trying to speak ill of those people. But that is someone who has been deluded. Because God's word is pretty clear on our moral lives and what they should be. But if we persist long enough and we let our heart harden enough. God will let our hearts be hardened. God will let us believe the lies that we want to believe. So do we love the truth? When you see the word of God rebuke some sin in your life, do you accept that rebuke and repent of that sin and seek to change however difficult it may be? Or do you try and excuse it? Do you try and justify it? When you see something that you should be doing and you know you should be doing, but you don't want to do it because you'd rather be doing something else, do you change? Or do you find a way to justify your behavior? 
If we are constantly justifying our behavior instead of being transformed by the renewal of our mind through God's word, as Paul will later call the, would later call the Romans to do in Romans chapter 12, then we can be deluded. And we may very well be deluded. But if we will be honest with ourselves, if we will humbly come before the word of God, and if we will take an honest look into that perfect mirror of the law of liberty, and see the reality of who we are, and seek to change that, then we don't have to fear being deluded. But we could love the truth. And loving the truth, we can become what we want to be, and what we would like to think we are, and that is a child of God. But again, we must devote ourselves to the truth, so that we don't give, away, give way to delusions that are dangerous. But thirdly, just because you say you are something does not mean you are. In the transgender movement, what is said has become very important. A man will adamantly claim that he is a woman. Thus, he will say that again and again. He will even demand that other people call him a woman or some other pronoun of his choice. But just because he says that he is a woman and just because he convinces many other people to say he is a woman does not make him a woman. In the same token... You may say you are a Christian. You may convince others to say you are a Christian. But that does not mean that you are a Christian. If we say we are a Christian but we live like the world, then what are we really? Obviously we are worldly, not Christian. Even Judas called Jesus rabbi. He even kissed him during the actual act of betraying Jesus. It's easy to say something. But that does not make it a reality. Now we are supposed to confess Jesus. And sometimes we face the other problem. Sometimes we're ashamed of Christ. and We should not be that way. Sometimes we're afraid to share our faith. And we should not be that way. But on the other hand, sometimes we're more than happy to tell people we go to church. Or where we go to church. Or what we, what we say we are. But do we live in accordance with that? Do we confess Christ only with our mouth? Or does our life back up? Our confession that Jesus is Lord. Now the Bible is clear that our confession should be backed up with conduct. John writes in 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We all say that we love each other. But what do our actions show? Paul exhorted Timothy to set an example for the believers in speech. And then he says also in conduct and love, faith. And purity. Peter addresses Christian conduct several times in his first epistle. He says that Christians are to be holy in all of our conduct. In 1 Peter 1.15. In 1 Peter 2 and 12. He says that our conduct towards outsiders should be honorable. So that when they try to speak against us as evildoers. They will instead see our good works and glorify our father. When he speaks to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. He tells them to be subject to those unbelieving husbands. So that they might be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives. Now Peter wasn't saying that wives can't share the gospel with their unbelieving husbands. He wasn't saying they can't try and study scripture with them. But he was saying that the most powerful weapon that they have. The most powerful influence they will yield in their home. Is their conduct. 
And that's not just true of wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. That's true of every one of us. That's true of husbands that are married to unbelieving wives. That's true of parents who have unbelieving children. That's true of children who have unbelieving parents and all of us that have unbelieving friends and family. Yes, we should teach them the gospel. We should urgently and passionately plead with them to consider the truths of God's word. But we must live it. It must be seen, not heard only. And when others see our conduct, then they will know that we don't just say that we're Christians, but they'll see that we're Christians. And God will see that. And we will truly be Christians and Christ followers. And lastly, just because you do some Christian things, or just because I do some Christian things, does not necessarily mean that we are a Christian. When someone thinks they are something else, it will likely impact their behavior to some degree. Again, to use the illustration of a transgender person, because a man thinks or wants or desires to be a woman, he may dress like a woman, he may mimic typical behaviors and traits of a woman, but those things don't make him a woman. Or just because a woman might dress like or talk like or walk like a man does not mean that she is a man. Spiritually, it is possible to do some Christian things, but not actually be a true Christian. Now, worship is a good and important part of Christianity. The assembly of the church is not something that is to be forsaken. But on the other hand, just because we show up to a worship service once a week, or even two or three times a week, does not necessarily mean that we are faithful Christians. If we have allowed worship to become nothing more than a ritual, or we spend one to three hours each week, but we live like the world the rest of the time, we are not following Christ. Now that's not an excuse for us to not attend the services. Because if we're not attending the service of the church, then we're not obeying God either. But we must avoid the problem of ritualism and traditionalism. We must avoid the error of thinking that because we do a couple of very important Christian things, that the rest of our lives can be lived how we want to live them, like the world. We may obey some of God's word, but if we're not committed to following all of God's word, then can we say that we are Christians? But consider this very topic of transgenderism. There are many professing Christians that adamantly and vocally condemn transgender behavior and homosexual behavior and they are quick to point out that these things are unnatural they are an abomination to God and they have verses at, read, at the ready at all times to debate this lifestyle and then some of these very same people commit fornication adultery or partake in other immorality themselves in fact if you remember before the transgender issue was a debate it was the gay marriage debate that was prominent in this country and one of the key criticisms that was often levied against mainstream Christianity in America was that so many professing Christians, while trying to use the Bible to condemn others' lifestyles, had apparently all but abandoned the Bible's teaching about divorce and remarriage. And you know what? Those criticisms were correct. They were right. Now that didn't make the sin okay but the hypocrisy of so many people had been called to light 
and it wasn't a false accusation. Across this country, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people that claim to be Christians and denounce certain methods, types of immorality, while they are living in adultery. Now, they may never partake in any type of homosexual behavior or transgender behavior, and they shouldn't. But just avoiding those things doesn't mean that they're Christians when they perfectly are, are perfectly happy to allow other sins to reign in their life. Too often we do just enough Christian things to look like a Christian. and Maybe convince others that we are Christians. But in reality we are not. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this very thing. He said in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus told the Pharisees, you may look righteous. You may have convinced all these crowds that you're righteous because there's certain things that you do that are right and that are good. And you sure make sure that people see those things. But he said, but it's just like a whitewashed tomb. It may be a pretty building. It may be a beautiful tombstone. But inside it's full of death and decay and rottenness. He said, that's who you are. And we are no better when we pick and choose a few main things like showing up to a church service, avoiding really bad sins, doing one or two good deeds here and there, but by and large we live our lives for ourselves and our desires. And do not truly bow the knee in full surrender to the Lord. Following Jesus is not about picking out a couple of commands here and there that we're going to obey. Christianity is a complete subjection of our will to Christ and a total submission to His authority. It means serving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. It means learning all of Jesus' commands, as He said in Matthew chapter 28, in that great commission. And until this is our attitude, our goal, and our purpose... And it may be that we are just doing a few Christian things, but not actually following Christ. And so this morning, the question that each of us must answer is, am I a Christian? Or do I just identify as a Christian? Is my faith more than just desires? Is it more than just thoughts? Is it more than just words? Is my commitment absolute or am I just going through some of the motions? That's the question I have to be able to answer. And it's the question that you must be able to answer. And I hope that our sermon this morning has helped us all think about these things in a sober way. So that we are not just identifying as Christians. But so that we truly are disciples of Christ. Following Him. And able to wear that name truthfully and honestly. As we bring the sermon to a close, perhaps there's someone here who knows they are not a Christian, who knows that you have not obeyed the gospel, and thus in no way can you be considered a Christian and a child of God. You may want that, you may desire that, but you need to turn that desire into reality by obeying the gospel. 
And if you're here and you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and you're ready to place your faith in Him, then you need to repent. But if you're ready to repent and you're ready to change your life and stop living for self in the world, and you're ready to start living for Christ, then you need to confess Him. You need to confess that He is the Son of God, and that is an acknowledgement that He is the Lord. That is a vow of allegiance that you are going to let Him be and make Him the Lord of your life and follow His will. And that begins by obeying His first command of being baptized so that your sins can be washed away, so that you can be made new, and so that you can be added to His kingdom. If you haven't done that yet today, we plead with you to seriously consider taking those steps so that you can be washed and become a child of God. Or if you're here and you are a Christian and you would like the prayers of the church for some reason, if there's a confession you would like to make so that we can pray with you or some other need of prayer, then we would be happy to assist you as well. If there be one in need, we invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.